Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episode of Star Trek. This week we're looking at season three, episode three of Star Trek Discovery entitled People of Earth. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Dr. Michael Merrick. I'm the media guy. And I'm Dr. Rodney Cup. I'm the philosophy guy. Our website is the Star Trek Academy blogspot.com and you can find links there to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and we're also available on lots of podcast sites too many to mention here that you can find linked at that website some of those sites like iTunes allow reviews if you like our podcast go ahead and leave a review to help us get more listeners if you don't mind and Rodney, I think first, before we jump in, we should acknowledge that we were spot on last week with our prediction about the tree. Now, Boothby wasn't mentioned by name, but I think pretty much all fans who are familiar with Next Generation at least know what tree it was. And our prediction about the connection the tree would make for the bridge crew was just exactly what the uh, what the episode showed, and it wasn't really it wasn't simply a grounding. It was almost a catharsis. It was them coming to grips with their new situation in the future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I'll have a few words about that later on. Yeah, right. We do have in this episode of the podcast, we do have another. I won't call it a prediction, but a speculation that'll be towards the end of the episode. This time about how the writers might use some technobabble to explain the burn. So that will be later in the episode. But now, as always, we have a brief description of the episode. And we're trying to be short and sweet. But if you have not seen the episode already, there there be spoilers here. So and uh, with the episode summary, now here's Rodney. All right. And here they come. So as the episode begins we find out that Burnham has been a courier in the past year. She's been transporting goods in exchange for dilithium, and that's allowed her to travel in search of information about the burn. But no one knows what caused it, but it happened all at once across known space, and we hear that millions died. So she wants to discover the cause and try to bring the Federation back together. Anyway, she's reunited with the crew of Discovery, and she shares with them a 12-year-old transmission that she found in which Admiral Senatal invites any Federation vessels to Earth. So they plan to use the spore drive to jump there and pose as a ship stranded by the burn and forced to return home at sublight speed. Anyway, it's resolved that Saru is now Discovery's permanent captain, Book is brought on board along with his ship, which is used to store and cloak Discovery's dilithium. Burnham gives him reasons to travel with them to the Alpha Quadrant, but she won't admit that she simply wants him to come with her. So it is resolved that Saru is now Discovery's permanent captain, and Book is brought on board, and his ship is going to be used to store and cloak Discovery's dilithium. Burnham gives him reasons to travel with them to the Alpha Quadrant, but she won't admit that she simply wants him to come with her, and he seems to want her to remain with him. And it becomes apparent that Burnham has changed in her year away from Discovery. Tilly observes that she is lighter, and Burnham tells Book that Discovery is familiar to her, but far away. And Saru was surprised that she didn't even consider being captain. Burnham admits that she is adapted to the loss of the Federation and let it go. 
It's also apparent that Burnham and Book have been on a lot of adventures together. So anyway, Discovery uses the spore drive to jump to the solar system, and they are greeted at Earth by Captain Ndoye of the United Earth Defense Force, who tells them that they are not welcome. Saru gives her their cover story, and they submit to a mandatory inspection. One of the inspectors, a young person named Adira, is especially interested in Discovery's spore cube. Captain Ndoye tells them that after the burn, having the Federation on Earth made them a potential target. And Earth had become self-sustainable anyway, so the Federation hasn't been on Earth for a hundred years. They also find out that Admiral Tall died two years ago. Suddenly, Discovery is accosted by dilithium raiders led by someone named Wen, who appears on their view screen in a helmet that completely covers his head. Ndoye orders Discovery to leave orbit, but for some reason her inspectors can't beam off Discovery. Without telling Saru, Burnham and Book leave Discovery in Book's ship. They offer to give Wen all of the dilithium, but he would have to lower his shields to get it. And Doye won't allow Wen to get all that dilithium, so she orders an assault on Book's ship. So Saru orders Detmer to use Discovery to shield Book's ship, and the quantum torpedoes hit Discovery instead. Suddenly, Burnham appears on the bridge with Wen. Book is back on board with their dilithium, and the raiders have powered down their weapons. Now, unfortunately, Ndoye and Wen seem unwilling to talk, but Giorgio unmasks Wen, and turns out Wen is human. He's from a research settlement on Titan, which had become self-sufficient, but suffered an accident that destroyed a third of their habitats. They sent a ship to Earth to ask for help, but it was fired upon and destroyed. Burnham and Saru propose a deal. Earth provides Titan with engineers and equipment. Titan shares its research with Earth. And Wen and Ndoye agree to discuss terms. Meanwhile, Adira tells Stamets that she sabotaged the inspector's personal transporters so she could have more time on discovery. As it turns out, she has joined with a Trill symbiont, one of whose former hosts was Senatal. And although she can't seem to access his memory, she may have knowledge of what remains of Starfleet. So Ndoye allows her to stay on Discovery and invites Saru's crew to visit Earth. And at the end of the episode, we see the bridge crew visiting what was once Starfleet Academy, and in particular, a tree they used to study under back in the day. And that's the episode. Okay, so as usual, first we'll just look at some of the individual elements and then we'll move on in a bit to the, the messages and morals and, and the lessons that, uh, that the writers want us to learn. Rodney, I couldn't, I couldn't help but notice that uh, in this season, I think we get our first star date and it's a long star date compared mm -hmm. to what we're used to, 865211. But I did the math and it does conform even across 930 years to the formula that has been used uh, since the next generation that a thousand star dates equals one year. Okay. <laughs> the very first season of next generation was 41000. The second season was 42, like that. And mm -hmm. looking forward, uh, the appropriate number of years, it, it matches that, uh, that formula. I was also particularly uh, touched by Tilly arranging 
the comm badges and name plates of those who've been killed on Discovery. And, and that's that's when they first foreshadow the tree when she talks about being desperate for something that re- they can recognize. And she mentions right. the pyramids and the Gateway Arch at, at uh, St. Louis. To me, yeah. Mount Rushmore would have been nice for her to mention. And even Crazy Horse Memorial, which is a mountain carving not that far, a much bigger mountain carving than Mount Rushmore, not too far away, both in the Black Hills of South Dakota. They will mm-hmm. both certainly be around in the year 3189, particularly if they get some kind of maintenance maintenance of the rock. And, and, and both of those places, the, the, the carvings are inspected and any little cracks are filled and things like that. So mm-hmm. uh, Mount Rushmore or Crazy Horse would have been nice alternatives for her to mention. I agree. There are some allusions, additional allusions here. Uh, in the episode to the importance of family and togetherness. Uh, For example, Saru tells Burnham that everyone on board Discovery is grateful for each other. And when they decide to go to Earth, Saru tells them that they will begin together to make a bright future. And Book tells Burnham near the end of the episode that he's glad that she has a family on Discovery. And there's a contrast here that struck me between Burnham and Book. When he leaves Discovery at the end of the episode, all he has is grudge aboard his ship. And if this is going to be a recurring theme, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up joining the Discovery family by the end of the season. But we'll just have to wait and see for that. Now, he is, by all accounts, a regular or a frequently recurring character. So at the moment, they've got to figure out how to do that. Yeah, right. I also liked how the writers showed, they didn't tell us, but they showed us how Burnham and Book, they've spent a lot of time together in the past year, and they've grown close. They talk about time spent on Donatu 7 and in a bog on Ikasu, and um, how they both made some scary people so angry that Book has a reason now to flee to the Alpha Quadrant. And they have names for tactics they've used on their adventures like Radox Sin and Orion Tango. It's, it's, it's quite clear that they've spent a lot of time together. They, they have. But I got to take exception to that, that quadrant thing. Um, you know, Burnham says that Book is in a new quadrant now. And, but their former location, presumably their former quadrant, had Andorians and Orions and Tellarites and other familiar species that are species of the Alpha Quadrant, not, mm-hmm. for example, the Beta Quadrant. They also did stuff at, at Donatu 7, which, well, Donatu 5 was mentioned in The Trouble with Tribbles and in some other episodes. And that mm-hmm. is clearly in space between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. So that's not in the Beta Quadrant. So uh, I think the use of quadrant was was incorrect. In the original series, in early Star Trek, quadrant was just kind of a, a filler, a filler word. Yep. Uh, but later it came to reflect the four quadrants of the galaxy. Right. Um, you know, alpha quadrant, beta quadrant, all that. And so I, I to me, that's just a flaw. The, the writers should have had Burnham say something like a different sector. So I want to talk about Adira and Senatal. Uh, first, based on uh, Jadzia Dax, I assume that Tal is the name of the symbiont and Adira and Senna are the names of the hosts. And Adira must have been around 14 years old uh, when becoming a host for, for Tal, the Tal symbiont. 
And maybe that is why she's having some trouble accessing memories. Um, uh, Roddy, my wife recalled that in, in a Next Generation episode, Riker was a host for Symbiont for a while. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have any trouble accessing the memories. Uh, but, of course, he got really sick. In fact, he was almost terminally ill as a result of being a human host for a trill. So that's something they haven't really addressed with, with Adira. But there was the mention about Adira somehow understanding the operation of a 900-year-old starship. And maybe right. Tal does. Maybe he was alive then. He's mm-hmm. been around long enough. They are very long-lived. And at least she remembers that much or she has that, that much of a connection to him. When Esri Dax was introduced to Deep Space Nine, it was established that a Trill host, particularly without training, could become somewhat schizophrenic or even experience some dysphoria because there are two personalities there together. One example one of the producers quoted uh, years ago was, do I like Rock Tugino or do I only think I like Rock Tugino? Mm-hmm. So maybe Tal's is deliberately withholding full contact. And, and if you take that the next step, given that the, uh, the gender of the actor playing Adira is non-binary, maybe some of that dysphoria could be, could be a plot point. And, and let me hasten to say that, um, as is fairly common today, I'm using the word actor without intending to signal gender. Right. Yeah. And I, um, just to go back to an earlier point, I, I am a little concerned that uh, the Trill has been joined with a human being. And I do remember that episode with Riker, and I'm wondering if they're going... Well, I hope they say something about that, because it just doesn't seem like that is uh, something that you could normally do. <laughs> you know, right. we're, we're hundreds of years later, and yeah. I mean, I think, as I remember, in effect, Riker's body was rejecting the, the symbiont, just like in some surgery today, you have to be careful about rejecting a, a transplant. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe in 900 years, that's taken care of, but it would be nice to have, if, if that's the approach they want to take and not make it a problem, it would be nice to have a throwaway line somewhere. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I agree. But there's a lot of, I mean, as your, as your comments point out, they could do some interesting stuff with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. And, and I mean, to a certain extent, we saw that with Jadzia also in Deep Space Nine, but it's, it's a different era, a different decade, and they, can, and they can make it representative of today's culture in a way that wasn't really acceptable to do with right. Jadzia decades ago. Right. I have a few other just quick take notes. And, and Rodney, you like to compare people to Beckett Mariner. And in this episode, <laughs> Michael Burnham was a Beckett Mariner. Uh, yes. She ignored protocol. She bowled ahead depending on her own experience. And also in parallel to Beckett Mariner, she's not pr- she is not interested in command. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's um, a little eerie now. Yeah. The similarity. Know. In this yeah. episode, we hear again, Book says, grunge is a queen. She's a queen. And we've heard that more than once. And, I, and I, again, I wonder if that's foreshadowing something. And what comes to mind for me immediately is Isis from the original series episode, Assignment Earth, where Gary Seven's cat actually sometimes was not a cat, was a woman. Yep. wonder... Again, my guess is they're not going to do that, but I would love it if, if grunge turns out to be whatever species Isis, Isis was. Mm-hmm. 
you know, or, or that or they do something. I mean, yeah, you know, it would be okay with me if if it if it turns out that Grudge is merely a cat. But if there's something more to Grudge than that, I would I would be okay with that too. I mean, I it's mean, an interesting opportunity there for people them. who have lived with cats know that they consider themselves to be kings and queens of the household. You know, <laughs> so it could just be be fun with that, but it might foreshadow something coming up. I wanted to note that Wen is played by Christopher Heyerdahl, who is a Canadian actor, and I've seen him in Stargate, Sanctuary, he's been in Supernatural. I haven't watched the Twilight movies because it's not my thing, but he was in them and all kinds of things back to around 1990 or so. I do wonder why does Wen need that weird hel helmet, particularly on a crowded spaceship? other than as a plot device to obscure the fact that he's human until the last second. It does make him look pretty creepy. Yeah, to begin Maybe with. Maybe that's it. So, sort of like a Balok's dummy, <laughs> you know, just to make yeah. him look scarier. Well, exactly, you know, and, and for the same reason. A few other just little um, quick takes. The dilithium canister looks a lot like what my bank uses for the drive-up window for, for the tube to get things in and out of the, the bank. The orbiting stations at Earth look a bit like Sahil's, although Sahil's is not in as good shape. On the, the Earth Defense Force uniforms, there's that round device that projects the holographic panel. And if you look closely, the round device has EDF initials on it. And finally, I was kind of happy. I was happy to see the Golden Gate Bridge. I was happy to see yeah. that it still has solar panels which we also saw in Star Trek Picard. In Picard, the Golden Gate Bridge was not a not a, a thoroughfare. It was a solar panel array, basically. And I thought that was kind of cool. Right. If, if Earth is going to be self-sustainable, uh, they're going to need to make the transition to green energy. It's, it's just going to have to happen. So messages, morals, and meanings. I guess we can shift to that. Indeed. Um, there's a certain lack of tolerance at Earth, which is a little disturbing to me. Thanks to the burn, the possibility that it was an attack on the Federation, Earth seems isolationist and kind of paranoid now. They're cut off from the rest of the galaxy and even the colony on Titan. I mean, the mere fact that Titan became self-sufficient is not necessarily reason to, to cut them off. And it shouldn't be that hard to communicate with Titan. I mean, if we had a space probe orbiting Titan today, we could communicate with it. So, it, well, the folks would... on when said that their their long range communications had been destroyed. So that that would that would explain why they were unable to communicate. But Titan in in the thirty second century, Titan's not that far away from Earth. No. Um, so it, it 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 makes it Earth seem isolationist. Intentionally um, isolationist. Yeah. Case. I mean, they dis greet discovery with basically a wall in space. And when they ask Ndoye, Captain Ndoye, to confirm that Earth is no longer part of the Federation, she says, why should we be? We can take care of ourselves. They seem to have no interest in exploration or making friends. She tells Wen that Earth has had to have strong defense protocols in the name of self-preservation. Taking all this in, it, it, it makes me think of, you know, the isolationists that we have in this country and that sort of um, isolationist strain that crops up in, in American thinking from time to time. 
You know, we had we had a bit of that uh, in Picard also, where due to the Romulan attack, uh, Earth and the Federation had become isolationist. And I think I, I I agree. I think both are probably reflection of our times. And it's not it's not just the United States that's around the world. There are I mean that's kind of what Brexit is about. And around the world there oh, are right, similar right. there are similar um, undertakings today. Right. Good point. Now, to me, the main theme of this episode, it's not really stated overtly, but the main theme of this episode is that people of goodwill can sit down and resolve their differences. And um, Saru said that, stop making assumptions and start listening. Right. And often a theme is overtly stated, and I I don't think it says it as such, but I think that that is the big message. Everything else going on in the episode, it's people who are antagonistic to each other, if they really sit down and talk, they could find common ground and and find a way to work out their differences. I agree. Um, This episode also apparently begins a a series of episodes in which we're searching for the Federation. Federation left Earth 100 years ago. We don't know where it went. And this reminds me of Isaac Asimov's uh, Foundation book series, because uh, a, a big part of that was the search for the second foundation. I'm not going to try to summarize the plot, <laughs> but there was there was a, an organization that was in hiding. It was in secret, and, and we're looking for it. It also has similarities to some of the early episodes of Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, the TV series, in which the veterans who were founders of the Commonwealth were, were hidden. And we need to remember that both this season of Discovery and Andromeda are, they're both based on a series concept that Gene Roddenberry had sometime, I think, in the, in the 1970s. And so we can sort of think of them as having the same inspiration, but different ways of telling the same fundamental story. I would right. note for those people who have read the Foundation series, that if this story really parallels Foundation, then the Federation will still be on Earth in hiding, like like a secret society among the Earth Defense Force. So again, there's a little prediction. We'll see. We'll see if that's if that's what they do. Oh, that is intriguing, Michael. That is intriguing. That would be very interesting. Um, something I wanted to point out here is we're going back to these themes about what Starfleet is and, and who the crew of Discovery is and things that you do or don't do because you're Starfleet. Uh, even Giorgio talks about Burnham discovering who she really is. That's a big theme in this episode. Burnham trying to find out who she is and what her place is and trying to find her way back to Discovery and Starfleet. Uh-huh. Um, there are other references to the principles of Starfleet. Uh, Saru reminds Giorgio on the bridge that Starfleet does not fire first. And he tells Ndoye, Captain Ndoye, that dialogue is an effective strategy. And that's confirmed in this episode, obviously. Of course, they would bring Ndoye and Wen together to, to talk and to work out their differences. And just to um, repeat here, great line, Saru says, perhaps it is time to stop making assumptions and start listening you get the sense that this is a galaxy that is in need of Starfleet principles. I mean, we've got these, these two sides at loggerheads and in conflict and these principles of, of Starfleet are able to bring them back together again. And and at least they're talking and negotiating now, which is a great outcome. Yeah. 
the whole dilithium shortage thing, I mean, in effect, that serves as an energy crisis. So that is also something that mm-hmm. kind of addresses a, a social question. It parallels our own. Currently, we're still pretty dependent on oil and and fossil fuels. And, yeah. and it reminds me of Mad Max, a road warrior, in which gasoline essentially becomes the basis for the economy. Also right. remember that that in addition to the mystery of the burn, we have another mystery in this season about Burnham's mom, because um, Michael contacted Terralisium. They've never heard of Burnham's mom. So what the deal is there also. Yeah, I wonder if they'll come back to that. I, I caught that line and not much else was made of it, but hopefully we'll find out more. I also wanted to talk about that tree again. Yes. Um, and this is, you know, this, I'm sure other people have pointed this out, but uh, th- that tree has got to be symbolic, Boothby's tree. And, uh, you know, we predicted it would be, that would be Boothby's tree. I don't know what other tree it would be. And the sort of connection Tilly has with it. Um, and in this episode, throughout the episode, Tilly is giving voice to the feelings of the crew about traveling 930 years into the future. It's kind of hard to imagine, but everything, everything they know is gone, even the Federation. Um, and we hear T- Tilly talking about this. At times, she sounds kind of like Claire Raymond in that first season Next Generation episode, The Neutral Zone, you know, thinking about her, her parents, her cousins, and how they're all gone. And Tilly's looking for some sort of connection to the, to the time that she knew. And when she finds the tree, she says, all these things are gone, but here it is. It's exactly where it's supposed to be. So maybe the tree represents, represents their connection to the past, surely, but maybe also the spirit of Starfleet and the continued life and growth maybe of the Federation in the future. It, and it might represent some other things also, but those, those are some fairly obvious potential meanings there that I, I, I hope they explore. Excuse yeah. me. Well, it certainly is a moment of grounding for the bridge crew. And just as you were speaking, I'm reminded of the Lord of the Rings where the, the white tree that had died uh, in, in, in Gondor. And after the War of the Ring, they found a seedling up in the mountains, a seedling from the tree that they brought back down to regrow. So, um, you know, I'm reminded of that symbolism, symbolism also. Well, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if they ever come back to the tree or at, at least it is interesting, interesting symbolism. It's kind of, you know, Star Trek is usually off earth and, um, for the most part, they never visited Earth in the original series. But here I am kind of hoping they go back to Earth <laughs> in yeah. this season. It's kind of interesting. Well, by, um, by policy in the original series, they, they would never go back to Earth. That was Gene right. Roddenberry's policy. We don't want to show Earth. Um, that's, not, that's not what the, what the series was about in, in his mind. Right. Uh, I have to agree with him about that. Why don't we, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in your theory here about the burn. Why don't we move on to uh, your final thought about that? I'm- okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can explain it. So we, we learned that whatever the burn was, any ship with an active warp core detonated. And that's presumably, we don't exactly know what dilithium does, but the, the indication is one way or another, it helps regulate the intermix of matter and antimatter which if it's not regulated, you know, matter and antimatter 
meet and they explode. And if a bunch of it meets, then it would explode really big time. So I was thinking, I was trying to think about how could all dilithium everywhere, or at least most dilithium everywhere, have something happen at the same time to cause the burn. And, and as you said, I have an idea. Now, like all science fiction, this is based on, well, in this case, based on advanced physics, it projects a lot. And anyone listening who's a true physicist will probably laugh a little bit here. But in science fiction and in Star Trek, we do this a lot. For example, the transporters for years, they've talked about the Heisenberg compensators, mm -hmm. which is a reference to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Right. And you, you're not going to be compensating for that. But so <laughs> we make up technobabble that sort of works. But I think that at least this might or could be the basis for some technobabble that at least possibly the writers might use to explain the burn. Um, so I've been thinking about how it will work. And, and let me lay some groundwork here. In Discovery Season 1, we learned that 40% of all the Federation's dilithium supply came from one planet, uh, Corval 2. And that without it as a source, half the fleet would be grounded. And if you look at the Memory Alpha website, which is pretty good about details, yeah. they list only 11 planets that have ever been mentioned where dilithium could be found, I mean, all the way through, through Star Trek. So, so whatever property of dilithium is that was used to regulate the matter-antimatter reaction, it just somehow stopped. It, it went inert is the term they used. And so the matter-antimatter reaction just went, went bluey. There is a strange principle in advanced quantum physics. It doesn't really make sense if you try to figure it out, but we know it's true that atoms or other subatomic particles can have a long distance connection to each other. It's called entanglement. So when you have, for example, two entangled particles, if something happens to one of them, it mm -hmm. happens to the other as well, no matter how far apart they are. That and quantum physics is bizarre. Particularly so, for people whose specialty is in the social sciences, right? <laughs> so, it's so now, weird. in addition to this entanglement, Particles have been caused to become entangled in the lab, so it can it can be caused to happen. And I saw I saw one article that said even small diamonds can become quantum entangled, and that entanglement can continue as they move around. So in in real science, properties that have been shown to be possibly entangled include position, that is where it's located, momentum which means the speed and direction it's moving, the spin of the particle and the polarization. And if particles are entangled, if you affect, if you affect one of those things for one particle, you affect the same properties of the other particle or other particles that are entangled with it. So in, in thinking about technobabble and in my imagination, it could be one of these properties of dilithium mm -hmm. that allows it control to control the intermix of matter and antimatter position, momentum, spin, and polarization. So what if all dilithium is entangled? And maybe even that entanglement is part of what makes it so good for controlling matter and antimatter. Or maybe at least the dilithium from one particular planet is all entangled. Mm. Now, it's usually not a problem, but in this case, something happened to some of the dilithium and making it happen to all of them. 
So, but right. we don't know what that what that thing was. It could have been a bad guy doing something, uh, or it could be some kind of freak natural occurrence. But it caused all of the entangled dilithium molecules to lose to to become inert, or at least to to have one or more of these properties canceled out. Right. Uh, some some additional techno babble that they could throw in. Science talks about something called a wave function collapse, which can change that original state of, in this case, the dilithium atoms, and, and maybe that a wave function collapse spread out to entangled particles and suppressed whatever property regulated warp drive. Mm -hmm. So now we saw in discovery that, that we saw that discovery itself has lot, apparently lots of spare dilithium because on the old enterprise, the original uh, 1701 enterprise, they only needed a few little crystals and things to do what they needed. Yeah. So, but suppose that on a typical Starfleet ship at the time of the burn, uh, the, the dilithium they had came from a lot of different sources. Maybe even they combined it together for use in the engines. And so maybe it really only was dilithium from one source that had the problem, but mm -hmm. it was enough of a problem to allow the engines to blow up. So again, maybe it was just something that happened on that planet of origin of some of the dilithium. Maybe it was something, a fluke of nature. Maybe it was some deliberate action by a bad guy. So there are still mysteries to solve, but a, a wave function collapse that caused entangled dilithium particles to become inert. That's some cool techno babble that, that I could, is that, that I, I, could, I could I could imagine them throwing in, depending on what their plan is for what the actual cause is. I assume that they have that the writers have it figured out as part of their story arc. Well, I hope um, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's the Kelvins from the Andromeda Galaxy. I think I, I mentioned that in an earlier episode, didn't That's I? possible. <laughs> yeah, the other the other possibility is we won't learn by the end of the season. The end of the season will be the discovery of the new home of the of the Federation, and we'll continue into next season to figure out about the burn. Who knows? You know, you're right. I mean, as we're watching this, there, there's a lot of sort of let, let me put it this way: the agenda is growing of things that they want to do that need to get done. Um, why not stretch this out into season four? Sure. It, it's, I mean, it's very possible it could. If it was me, the next place I'd stop would be Vulcan. You know, why is that? Earth, well, Vulcan is one of the founding right. uh, planets of the Federation. Oh, right, right. Um, of course, they may still be a member. They might. Um, and they're relatively nearby, right? They're, they're, yeah, they're not too too far away. In particular, well, the spore drive, no, nothing's far away. Well, that's true. But uh, um, they're, they're not too far away. Uh, if they preserve their their culture of logic. They might have information preserved. They might uh, be willing to be supportive of the ship from the past who can do things that their own ships can't anymore. Who knows? I mean, just just that's where I'd go. I'd check out some of the founding worlds of the Federation, right. but the previews do not appear to be going to Vulcan. The previews appear mm. to be doing something different. So, Well, you know, maybe Vulcan has been overrun by those, those uh, logic extremists. That's you know? possible too. You know, those folks are jerks in, in a few hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. 930 years. That's a long time. You know, so, well, which, which is also what's like 700 years from Picard. Is that what it is? I did the math, oh. but I have to go back and 3189 minus 2400. <laughs> so whatever. Yeah. I'm a philosopher, not a mathematician. Yeah. 
unfortunately. Well, I think that about does it for this time. I think so, yes. So we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us this week. The Star Trek Academy podcast responds to every new Star Trek episode of every series. You can find our new episodes at the Star Trek Academy blogspot.com and that site also has links to several platforms for your podcast app next week we'll be looking at episode four of discovery reportedly entitled forget me not so we'll see you then <laughs>